Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org slash podcasts. Isaiah has been probably the single greatest uh, experience of teaching the Bible that I've had in my life. 42 years of teaching the Bible. It has been the most amazing communion with God, basically, personally, to deal with, to read this book and study this book. I get up from my desk and have to walk around the room with excitement because of the things that you find when you're studying it. It's just so amazing. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible, an audio series in which I get to, on your behalf, sit across a table in the offices, oftentimes, of some of the best Bible teachers of our day to talk through a book of the Bible. And I've got a clear aim in these conversations, and that is to mine from these very capable communicators of God's Word everything. I can to help us as teachers be prepared to rightly, uh, creatively, capably teach through a book of the Bible, which can oftentimes be very intimidating, especially if we haven't been to seminary and we are afraid that we won't have all of the answers that people are going to raise their hands and ask questions. And what we want to do is be as prepared as we can. And today we are getting prepared to teach the book of Isaiah, picking up on a conversation in a previous episode. In the previous episode with Liam Golliger, we talked through chapters 1 through 39 of the book of Isaiah. And today we pick up our conversation, working our way through Isaiah chapter 40 through 65. I'm sitting across the table from Liam Golliger. We are in his office at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm quite sure you'll be able to tell that we are right in the heart of the city of Philadelphia as the traffic around us and service vehicles are beeping and whirring. And I'm just glad that you get invited in with me into his office to talk through this incredible book, a book that Liam has called actually perhaps the fifth gospel, because Isaiah has so much to tell us about God's plan for redeeming all things through Christ. So Liam, thank you for being willing to talk with us through this incredible book. Well, thank you for coming. This book excites me so much. Does it? You've been teaching, you've been preaching through it over many weeks. 42 weeks so far. And you're only in chapter, what, 41 or 42? Yeah, I think 40, chapter You're working your way slowly. Perhaps when most of us teach it, we won't Take quite that many. Weeks I would suggest to do you it. don't, because the the rumor the rumor mill apparently is that Isaiah himself is regretting ever having written it because <laughs> we've taken so long to teach it. <clears throat> well, I am confident that I am not going to regret having this conversation with you about this incredible book. Let me just begin um, this way: something we haven't haven't talked about yet in our conversation. A word that is repeated throughout the book of Isaiah over and over again, Isaiah keeps inviting us this way. He says, behold, over and over again. He says, behold, why is that? What's the uniqueness of that word and the way Isaiah uses it throughout this book? 
it's more than just look or see. It's grabbing someone by the collar and saying, you know, pulling them over beside you and, and making them look at something, focus on something that's coming. And when Isaiah says, behold, he's, he's saying, stop what you're doing now, come over here, look over there, keep your eyes on that. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Amazing! You know, it's, you, you cannot use the word behold and say, behold <laughs> no no behold look there's this an is, urgency to this it. yeah this is the most amazing thing you're ever going to see and and when when isaiah says at the beginning of chapter tw- uh, 40 behold your god you know that's what john the baptist is picking up on when he says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world behold your god well that's what we want to do as we continue our conversation in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40. Um, To summarize chapter 1 through 39 in a couple of sentences, what has this book been about so far? Well, at one level, it's been a deconstruction job of Israel, Judah, and the nations, showing that they are full of iniquity, that they are out of sorts with God, that God is at war with them, God is a fundamental argument with them, fundamental controversy with Israel, Judah, and the nations, including their kings, and that there is nothing they can do that will sort it out. God himself is going to have to act. And so by the end of chapter 39, we, we, we know that the, the future is bleak, that there's going to be disaster ahead, the days are coming that Behold, he says, the days are coming when all that's in your house, Hezekiah, and and your children are going to be taken into exile. It's going to be disaster, disaster. So from the the human perspective of where Isaiah is in his life, at the end of chapter 39, he has seen the best days gone, and it is disaster for these people that's ahead. And from chapter 40 following, he is... He is now not talking about anything that has any historical groundings in his present experience. He is talking into the future. He is relaying oracles from God concerning a big future. Um, And so even when you begin chapter 40, don't think of these as words simply being addressed to people who've been in exile in Babylon, which was still future to Isaiah, and coming back. No, he is, in chapter 40, announcing the solution to the problem that he has expounded on over and over again in chapters 1 to 39. That demolition job he's done to human behavior, human sin, and so on. But certainly those people who are in exile, as they read this, because they were the original audience. they They would have taken these... This would have been encouragement to them. I think the thing to remember is, however, that the people who came back from exile in Babylon came back under the rule of the Persians. And they did not come out of exile. They were still in exile, even though they were living in their own land. And the Persians, they were replaced by the Greeks. And the Greeks were replaced by the Romans. And we know that, we do know that God's people read these words, these opening words that are so familiar to us, comfort, comfort my people says your God, that they read those and gained hope from them, but they never thought that they were fulfilled in the return from the 
the exile. And we know this. How? I have biblical grounds for believing that, they, that we know this. In the early chapters of Luke, where Luke gives us an insight into the Jewish background of Jesus' birth, and we discover that there were people there in Jerusalem who were still waiting for the comfort. The consolation of Israel, we read in Luke, right? It's the same word. In the Greek version of the Mm -hmm. Old Testament, Mm. it's the same word. The uh, comfort or consolation of my people. Mm -hmm. They were waiting for that. And so when we read these opening words of chapter 40, we are hearing an announcement of the gospel that was fulfilled in Luke when the baby's born and brought into the temple and this old guy sees him and he realizes this is God coming. I mean, when, when John the Baptist's birth is announced to Zechariah, and so he says God has comforted his people. Same word. This is it. This is the comfort we were waiting for. Um, the promise was there for the people returning from exile. It probably was there for them while they were in exile, because Isaiah, what Isaiah had written in his lifetime, would have been taken with them. Um, it, the people in people's minds, it was very distinct from the first part, which, you know, touched on historical moments that you could recognize and remember and whatever, but this was a future document. And when they heard those words of comfort, they were, must have wondered what on earth is this talking about. Immediately there, here in chapter 40, there are some words that sound very familiar to us who are more familiar with the New Testament than with the Old Testament, and that is this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Those sound very familiar to us if we open up the first pages of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Well, John the Baptist is certainly one, and, and in Luke's Gospel, there are hints that it's not only John's role to prepare the way of the Lord, but it's the role of the church to prepare the way of the Lord, which probably has elements of repentance and so on in it. Um, but but I think the primary thing is to see that in many ways these opening verses of chapter 40 are the foundation for everything else we're going to read till the end of the book. So what is this great message? This great message is that the God who's not been speaking tenderly. He's not been... You read 1 to 39, he is not talking tenderly to Jerusalem. Is speaking now tenderly to her and crying out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and that she's received from the Lord's hand a double blessing in place of all her sins. So sin is dealt with, iniquity is dealt with. And the warfare between God and them because that's what it's all been about. They're at war with him, he's at war with them. That has been resolved. And those are all the blessings of the new covenant that we know about. As we begin to work our way then from chapter 40 on, I'm noticing a couple of terms that once again we see over and over again in Isaiah that perhaps it would be helpful uh, for you to give us some insight on. One is there in chapter 40 where it speaks of Uh, This mountain, Zion. Now, this is kind of a a basic of the Bible, but frankly, it's one that maybe some of us struggle with. It's, It's what is Mount Zion? Because it is throughout the whole of the Bible, and it's very significant here in Isaiah. When we're talking to believers today and using the Old Testament about Mount Zion, 
What are we talking about? We're talking about the place where Abraham took his son Isaac, his only son whom he loved, to offer him up as a sacrifice to God. We're talking about that mountain. That's where his historical origins are. We're talking about the mountain where Melchizedek was the king. We're talking about the mountain that David selected for his building the temple. We're talking about the place then where the temple was, the focus of the worship of Israel and where people communicated with God. And increasingly, Zion, as the place where God is present, because the temple was there, becomes a code word for the place where God is present. That is the heavenly Zion. In other words, Zion, the earthly place, becomes a kind of, yeah, it's the code word for the heavenly Jerusalem. And of course, in the New Testament, you go to great passages like Hebrews chapter 12, where that's made blatantly clear. But that doesn't, when I read it in in Hebrews chapter 12, and you're talking about instead of going to Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given, Mm -hmm. and the the covenant was given, which was going to be dependent upon my obedience. Mm -hmm. Good luck with that. Instead, you don't go to Mount Sinai, you go to Mount Zion. And so it doesn't seem to me there that it means a physical, literal place that we would find on a piece of real estate in the Middle East. So increasingly in Isaiah, Zion replaces the use of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the place in the Middle East, that, that place. Zion, which is the mount on which the temple is, becomes the favored word to describe something that is not geographically located, but that is, you know, where God is. In a sense, that was one of those shadows. Yeah. Isn't it? Of yeah, something right. greater, greater to come. Th- and the yeah. substance is this place where we meet with God, yeah. hide ourselves in him yeah. and experience right. his presence. So it's where he is in his fullness, really. So, yeah. Another phrase that's used over and over again in Isaiah, and you mentioned this in our earlier episode, but I see it here jumping out of me in chapter 41, is this unique designation Isaiah uses for God, calling him the Holy One of Israel. Mm. And I think we can have the tendency just read over that. He's talking about God, but there must be a reason. He's repeatedly referring to God in this way. When we read this, what should our ears hear? I think I think this is the advantage of having done 1 to 39. I mean, the people here were saying to me, are we ever going to get out of 1 to 39? You know, can we not just start with 40? <laughs> but in a sense, if you start with 40, then what that means is to be the Holy One of Israel does not really make sense. You, this is the God of blistering, blinding holiness who, who, when Isaiah saw him, thought he was going to be annihilated in his presence and who has been who has been doing a deconstruction job and all the arguments that Israel has for its fav- most favored nation status before God. And uh, the, ho- the holiness of God is the last thing you expect to be introduced when it comes to the matter of our salvation. And yet, in Isaiah part 2, where he's thinking about the far future, he, he uses the expression, the Holy One of Israel, and connects it to our salvation which raises an enormous question. If what I've learned from the first 39 chapters is that the Holy One must punish sin, must punish sin, 
that iniquity offends him, that he sees the whole the whole body sick, the whole heart sore, everything is wounds and bruises and putrefying sores as far as holiness sees it in my life and in the lives of others. How can the Holy One of Israel approach me, come near to me, do something for me? How can that happen? This is raising a question that will be resolved in part two of Isaiah. He puts forth this one who's going to do an incredible work. Uh, We have another behold then in chapter 42. Mm -hmm. Uh, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Help us understand this servant, both as the original readers probably would have, might have understood who this was and, and how we should understand this servant. I think the original readers would have tied this into the latter part of 1 to 39, chapters 37, 38, 39, where we have two references to David as God's servant, my servant David. They would have, they would have looked back to the promise of the virgin child, the human divine king of chapter 9, the uh, stump, the, the holy stump, holy seed, the holy stump. They would have seen all of that as a background. This is some future king. My servant is some future king. But they would have wondered that the emphasis was on the word servant, I think. I think this would have raised with people who first read it more questions than it answered. Yeah, that doesn't sound like this in many ways. This person whose kingdom will never end. If you compare this with Isaiah 6, this one who's high and Mm. lifted up, Mm -hmm. whose train fills the temple. What? He's a servant? Mm -hmm. So I think this, I really do think that a lot of this is raising questions in people's minds. I mean, there's no no doubt that some amazing things are happening as a a result of what the servant does. Uh, But you can see that some of the language of the divine human king of chapter 9 is used of this king who's coming, this one who's coming. Um, the Spirit's going to be upon him, and he has been called in righteousness, for example. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out from the dungeons those who are in darkness and so on. I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory I will give to no other. By his giving his glory to this person, this figure. Um, this is raising questions. How can this? How can God talk to... Is, is this Israel? I think some Jews might have read this and thought, is, is the new Israel going to be so good, good that God can say this kind of thing to, to them? You know... Uh, is this the king, the future king, uh, that God can speak to him in these terms? Maybe they thought God was just being over the top. Uh, the things he was saying, did he really mean these things? He was saying, but I think it would have raised questions more than given answers. Questions that would only be resolved once the servant himself came on the scene. Walk us through some of these chapters now. I mean, I almost feel like we're going up a hill, in a sense, to get to chapter 53, which is, you know, a part of Isaiah that we're so familiar with. But 
so much takes place in between chapter 40 before we get to 53. Give us a sense of what's happening in these chapters. I think in these chapters, more and more, this servant who is introduced at a whole variety of levels is being closely, closely tied in with God, with the Lord. He is the servant of the Lord. Everything about this servant, up until 53, everything about this figure puts him closer and closer and closer and closer to the Lord in terms of his relationship to God, in terms of having the Spirit of the Lord, in terms of being chosen, the Spirit indwelling him, um, bringing up, he, he's the one who is going to introduce a new song. New song is something that goes along with a new creation, chapter 42. Um, he, he is the one who brings with him this idea of salvation, chapter 43. We have this underlining in chapter 43 that God is Israel's only Savior. But the servant of the Lord here is going to to do some saving. You know, how God is the only Savior. This, This human factor who is really blessed and chosen by God is going to do the saving. So, which is it? We wh- want to say it? it doesn't seem you know, like it, it could be, be both. Can be both, you know. And and so the this tension is there. It, it begins in chapter nine with this divine human king, and here it's going on. Only this time it's being teased out. It's being filled out as we as we as we proceed. Probably the crucial introduction to the servant is in chapter forty nine, because in forty nine a very important distinction is made. <clears throat> 49 is the chapter that actually names the servant. God addresses the servant and says, You are Israel. So so God is the only one who redeems. The servant is very close to God. Chapter 49, God says to the servant, You are Israel, that I have chosen. The Holy One of Israel has chosen the servant in order to redeem Israel itself. Now that is an absolutely vital New Testament insight. Because when Jesus comes and Matthew, for example, teases this out, Jesus is represented in Matthew as being God's Israel. He is we see that in the early chapters, especially of Matthew. Yep. Jesus, in, is, in a sense, walking once again in the same path of Israel as he goes to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And um, then as he is tempted. Well, he goes down to the... He does a re, goes down you know, to the Israel river. In reverse. He <laughs> goes down to the river, <clears throat> crosses the Jordan into the desert where Israel was. And, and there he is tested. As Israel was tested, except he was obedient. Yeah. Where Israel, so was he is not. the obedient Israel. He is the faithful and obedient Israel. When we get to chapter fifty-three, this first verse, he's telling us to look, but it's almost as if Isaiah can't even believe what he's seeing. Yeah. I mean, he's telling us to look at something, and it's like you're not going to believe this. I mean, this is this is too incredible. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And then he begins this very familiar passage, which seems... The preamble to the passage is yes. very important. I mean, that, that, that ex- those expressions, high, lifted up, exalted, in... In chapter 52, 13. Yeah, 52, 13. Those expressions are only ever used of God ah. in Isaiah. 
So if we were reading this, we should be understanding. We should he's bringing that. those two things together. He's God, he's but he's servant. the servant. You see, this is the tension we've been noticing. Mm-hmm. And here it's brought together. My servant is going to be in the status of God. He'll be high lifted up and exalted. <clears throat> and, and then this suddenly uh, juxtaposition of his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. And yet he's going to be effective in cleansing many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of him and so on. Who can believe this? Chapter 53, 1. And to whom is the arm of the Lord, the strength of God, been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the arm of this one who's coming, the one who's heralded in chapter 40 um, as God and as the glory of God. So it's the glory of God and it's God himself who's coming. We see he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. How very different is this figure from the glorious king that we saw back in Isaiah 6. So what is glory again? Glory is a created manifestation of the uncreated God. And in this created manifestation this time, the highest form of the glory of God is in actually a human form and this form is without form or majesty. He's despised and rejected. There is no beauty that we should desire him. That God should reveal his glory in, in that way is beyond. I mean, the universe, I understand. The universe is really big and it's really amazing. But that God should reveal his glory in, in this. If we were studying the whole of the Old Testament, we would have seen, especially back in Exodus and Leviticus, that God has always been showing to us the principle of a substitutionary sacrifice. But certainly it's never quite as clear. I'm not sure anywhere else in the Old Testament it's as clear as when we get into the heart of chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, such an incredible picture of substitution. And I, I have to think of Luke 24 when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. And he's with those disciples and he, oh, you, you're so foolish of heart, so slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Perhaps he was even thinking of Isaiah here because he says, if you'd been reading your Bibles, basically, well, yes. you would have known yeah. that the, the, the Messiah was going to suffer before he was glorified. And mm-hmm. here is the real heart of the suffering yeah. of the Messiah. Yeah. And that was before the resurrection. Well, that was before they knew of the resurrection. He's still saying to them at that point, you should have known. It's there in your scriptures. He said that to the Pharisees. It was all there in your scriptures. You should have seen it. And this is, as you say, the clearest place where that is manifest here. This is how God deals with the Holy One of Israel problem. You know, how does God deal with his own holiness? He himself, through his servant, who is very close to him and who will share the same glory as him and who has the Holy Spirit, for goodness sake, in absolute perfection indwelling him. In other words, the Spirit of God, which is at the very heart of God, fills this person to the fullness 
in a way that he'd in you know sevenfold fullness of the spirit. This person is the one who's substituted for our transgressions and our iniquities and our sins, the things that have kept us away from God. In his book, Knowing Christ Through the Old Testament, Christopher Wright writes something in the introduction that I remember was so striking to me the first time I read it, and it's still amazing to me. And it talks about Jesus himself in reading the Old Testament. He saw the shape of his own person, the shape of his own mission. And I have to wonder what it was like for Jesus to grow up going to the temple. And they opened up the book of Isaiah. And we're going to see later, Mm -hmm. he's going to actually read from it and saying, Mm -hmm. this has been fulfilled. But what must it have been like for Jesus to read Isaiah 53 and in a sense, see the contour, the his own very future of mm-hmm. the way his life and his death would take shape right reading this yeah. that's an interesting point because his own, his own self-awareness as in his humanity came from the bible of who he was and the, i suppose from reading the bible and praying to his father off the back of the bible mm-hmm. seeing seeing that his his spirit empathized with what was there when he says to the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem mm-hmm. and I'm going to be crucified and on the third day raised. In a sense, he has seen that yeah. right here in the, yeah. in the chapters of Isaiah. Chapter 60 begins, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Yeah. So there is does seem to be a, a significant turning. Mm-hmm. The nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Yeah. And, Sounds and, in many ways like our age now as yeah, the gospel goes right. out. Yeah. So that began, I guess, it began with the wise men coming seeking Jesus, but then that was just the, the precursor to this gospel age in which people are coming to Christ. And, and then we get to chapter 61, this passage we referred to mm, earlier, that mm. Jesus stood up in the temple and read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, of course, we know that when he reads this, as recorded in Luke, he doesn't. He stops there. He stops there. What's the significance of that? He stops there because there's going to be a pause between that and the final judgment. I think Which that that's is the, the that, day of the vengeance yeah. so of the, our God. The, the distinctive New Testament insight into the Old Testament is that the Old Testament is absolutely right. But that in terms of the economy of God, there was going to be a pause between the year of the Lord's favor and we're living the day in of that, vengeance. We're of living our God. in that pause, are we're we not? We're in the pause between those two phrases. Yeah. Yes. Between his coming and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor yeah. and then and the it, day that's to come, the day of I vengeance I think it's interesting, isn't God. it? Although it's poetry, there's the year of the Lord's favor. That's a really extended time. The day of vengeance of our God. You know, And we're in that year of the Lord's favor. The gospel is going out. The people who are thirsty are being come, invited to come and take of the water of life and so on. Like so many prophets, mm-hmm. Isaiah is often talking about a day, mm-hmm. a day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And he describes it as a day of vengeance. Uh, and it certainly will be that. But it's not just that. It's not just a day of vengeance, is it? That final day. No, but it's it's a day of vengeance for those who don't know God. But it's also a day of amazing 
restoration for the planet, for everything. The, I mean, if you're the, uh, the, the these are teased out actually. There's, there are two explanations. Chapter sixty-two, the coming salvation. Sixty-three, the day of vengeance, are, are expounded by the prophet. And you can see the day of vengeance there is the final judgment, the eternal Yes, state. the day of vengeance. You're talking about chapter 63, which mm. is a very vivid, and I have to say, it's not a pretty picture. I don't. No. I kind of don't want to look at this. Uh, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Your garments, like his, who treads in the winepress. And he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples was no one with me. So throughout the book of Isaiah, we've get, been getting um, pictures, seeing this person through whom God is accomplishing, going to accomplish his salvation from different mm-hmm. angles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Early on, we saw him as this king upon his throne, mm-hmm. which is full, right, and true. Yeah. Then we saw him earlier here in, uh, in the... 40s chapters he's this suffering servant he's different here once again and yet it's the same savior here he's a glorious uh, warrior yeah it's revelation 19 isn't it where where christ is the the lamb is now on the white steed and you know there's the marriage supper of the lamb and then there's the other supper where all the nations are kind of you're either at the table or on the table. I mean, that's Revelation 19. That's a vivid imagery. You're you're either sitting around doing the eating or you're the food on the table. It's that stark. It's we, dreadful. This is not a very politically correct, I guess, but maybe that's not even the term. I mean, when I have taught this um, in a women's Bible study kind of setting, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable in our day to present this day of reckoning, this day that's going to come. I mean, we love to focus on the part that's all yeah, the beautiful yeah, yeah. promises in chapter 62. I mean, I'd like to just stay right there. All of this beauty, this um, restoration, everything that has hurt us being set right. Oh, how we long for that day. Mm-hmm. Isaiah's not embarrassed by this picture. He's actually inviting us once again to behold of this day. But it's this king, servant, savior, and he has the blood of his enemies on his garments. Um, What's the secret to us teaching this with appropriate boldness? But I would say also sorrow would Mm -hmm. have to be a part of it, wouldn't it, in teaching this passage? I think whenever you, whenever we preach about judgment, I think there are positive elements to judgment, knowing that we live in a world in which justice will be done in the end. Some of the women I know who have been abused, some of the children I know who have been abused, and, you know, might is right. People in power can do this. People who have got influence can do this. And you think there has to be a day in which that's dealt with, that's put right. Unfortunately, there is there's a day. God has a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So often when we read about the judgment of God in the Bible, along with it is a promise of mercy. Mm-hmm. And that's the case exactly. here in chapter 63. Yeah. 
I will recount the steadfast love Love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. And there's this promise of mercy. So always, isn't isn't that key to us in teaching about the judgment of God? That mercy, that's who he is. is, He's not stingy with with mercy. He is abundant in mercy. And even now, Mm -hmm. those who are enemies of God, if they will repent and turn to him and allow him to wash them so that they will be white as snow, it's the invitation he gave yep. earlier, isn't it, in yep. Isaiah to come and um, and, and you, he would make us white. And there's mercy for us. And right throughout, whenever Isaiah preaches judgment, he always introduces mercy. I mean, and if you think about it like this, there's there's going to be a day of judgment, a day of condemnation, a day of wrath. But this is not that day. Today is not that day. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day when you can turn to the Savior. Today is a day of hope, joy. It's almost as if Isaiah, this has led him, he's, it's been building in him in chapter 64. He says, it's, you can almost hear him saying it, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Yeah. He is longing for this day of the coming of this uh, salvation, mm-hmm. the, this servant king to come and do his work of salvation. Yeah, that's a great cry, actually. I mean, it's a great cry that was answered when the Lord came down the first time. It's a great cry that will be answered when he comes a second time. And I think the church needs to learn to cry out for that, for the Lord to return. We don't much, do we? I mean, it seems maybe that's another one of those things that's kind of awkward, that we really are Christians who believe that God is going to come down on earth at a time in which we do not expect Mm. he's going to come again to earth. That seems little, not very sophisticated, yeah. to believe. <clears throat> and I think we are a bit preoccupied with what Christianity can do for me now. Right. Rather than what is the real hope that's held out for us, actually. Right now there may be suffering and persecution and there may be problems and there may be challenges and there may be unbelief and net error and, de- and evil and so on, but Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back. That's the incredible hope that's offered us and... I don't know, is it the first time in the Bible that we're actually given the promise made specifically this way of a new heaven and Mm -hmm. a new earth? When we see in chapter 65, for behold, once again, Mm -hmm. look at this. You've got to see this. Uh, You who are feel hopeless in a sense in regard to your sin and the oppression that you're under. Look at this. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And the New Testament perspective, of course, is that that new creation, again, like resurrection, is going to happen in two parts. You know, so right now when somebody is resurrected spiritually from the dead, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. That new creation begins with me be becoming a new creation spiritually and then in its fullness when I'm given a resurrected body and when the, the universe is renovated and renewed and, and you know, the, the lion dwells with the lamb and, and uh, it's all new. So we, we, the very reality, I mean, I say to people very often, think about your friends that you have at work and so on to whom you're close, but they don't know the Lord Jesus. Think think of them. They're pretty normal people. They're pretty interesting people. They're, they're nice people. You, you get on well with them. Why are you so different from them? Why do you believe? Why do you believe? 
Isn't it amazing that any of us does? That is a work of God. That's a new creation that's begun. That's the beginning of. If God can take somebody like you in relation to your friends and make you a new person, then he's able to take this world that we are in, this world, these streets, houses, hills, valleys, rivers, and make it sin-free, death-free. What a glorious promise. Amazing promise. So as we bring things to a close, Liam, would you now speak to us as teachers who are saying, you know what? God's word is worthy. This book is worthy. I don't want to ignore it because it might be challenging. And so speak to us as teachers who are preparing to teach this book and give us a word of challengement and encouragement to do the hard work that's going to be necessary to work our way through this book. I'll tell you this right now. I've now hit chapter 40, which makes me feel as if the end is in sight. And I do not want it to end. This has been, Isaiah has been probably the single greatest uh, experience of teaching the Bible that I've had in my life. 42 years of teaching the Bible. And I think Isaiah has been the greatest. It has been the most amazing communion with God, basically. Personally. Personally, to deal with, to read this book and study this book. It is, I get up from my desk and have to walk around the room with excitement because of the things that you find when you're studying it. It's just so amazing. It it breaks all the borders of your thinking. It kind of it's, it kind of rearranges your head, really, and and you you see other bits of the Bible making sense. Now I know what Peter was referring to, you know, or what Jesus was referring to. There, it makes sense now of so much, and uh, it is it is the fifth gospel. It's the gospel according to Isaiah. That's what it's about. It's about the gospel. It is huge, and. Uh, I'm really going. To, I'm really, really going to miss it. I mean, I feel as if this is a, this is a, this. I will never preach through Isaiah in my life again, you know. And I'm going to. Uh, I'm getting all teary now. I'm going to miss it. Next, next stop to meet him, I suppose. Next site for you to behold him in truth and mm-hmm. all of his beauty and majesty and glory. Well, you've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books and tracts, including the Preaching the Word commentary, Isaiah, God Saves Sinners by Ray Orland, and a 12-week study in the Knowing the Bible series on Isaiah written by Drew Hunter. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.